From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. I would also like to thank our podcast sponsor, Guarantee Commercial Title. Guarantee offers a new platform for the delivery of services based on the expertise and ingenuity of a visionary team of title professionals that identifies obstacles and creates solutions that result in a successful sale, construction, or financing of commercial real estate. To learn more, visit GuaranteeTitle.net. Landscape architect Lydia Major recently received a Career Achievement Award from the Minnesota Chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects. Major is LHB's Landscape Architecture and Planning Studio Leader, where she oversees a team of mainly women in the firm's Minneapolis and Duluth offices. Her leadership and mentorship of this team, which is unique in the industry, helped Major attain the award, she says. Major began at LHB in 2007, after a former co-worker asked her to join the Minneapolis-based firm. She started her career at Westwood Professional Services after graduating with a Master of Landscape Architecture from the University of Minnesota and a Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Quote, I sometimes feel like I use my English major more just in daily communications and how we kind of describe design to people, she says, end quote. Her work has spanned public, residential, and commercial spaces, including the Promenade of Wyzetta, the Minnehaha Creek Watershed District Comprehensive Master Plan document, and the Central Waterfront Regional Park Master Plan. In this episode, Major speaks with reporter Kelly Bush about her career and how over the past year, she has seen the public's expectations for public spaces like sidewalks, streets, and parks change due to the pandemic and social justice transformation. Well, thanks for joining me today, Lydia. I'm looking forward to learning more about your career in the industry, but first I wanted to learn about your background and your career. So can you give me a brief overview of where you started and how you ended up at LHB? Absolutely. Um, So I am actually a third generation English major, um, graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I actually lived in the same dorm that my grandmother (laughs) ate in when she was there. (laughs) <laughs> and that it, it's funny because I often mention my English major because even though I also have a master's in landscape architecture from the University of Minnesota, I sometimes feel like I use my English major almost as much. <laughs> Just daily communication and how we, how we kind of ex- describe to people design. It's really, really important um, to deal with those communication things. And so I kind of focused on that as I was going through my master's program. And coming out of there, I was uh, recruited straight out of school to work at a um, firm called Westwood Professional Services. And I worked with a guy there named Michael Schroeder. And after a short amount of time there, he moved to LHB to run the landscape architecture and planning studio there. And he asked me a few months later to join him at LHB. And so I've been working at LHB since 2007. And um, I started there as sort of a entry level designer 
And over the years, my role has evolved uh, to the point where I am now leading the landscape architecture and planning studio there. And there's just been so many opportunities um, to try really cool projects and explore different parts of the landscape architecture field. Um, and to honestly, probably most importantly to me, build a team of amazing designers around me um, who I love to work with every day. And so I have just been so grateful to work for a place that shares my values and supports me um, as a designer and as a person. And um, that has been a great fit for me over the past 14 years. Great. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I mean, the reason we're talking today is because you were recently awarded the Log Pine Award from the Minnesota chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects. So before I dive into my question about the award, I wanted to say congrats. And <laughs> my, my question is, you know, what does the award mean to you? Why is it given out? And how, how does this impact your career? Yeah, absolutely. So the Lab Pine Award is a career achievement award. And I have to tell you, I, I sort of checked in the mirror to see how many gray hairs I had developed overnight <laughs> when I was told that I was given it because it's often given to folks nearing retirement. Oh, wow. um, so it was certainly a great honor. The Lab Pine Award um, is named for uh, large trees that voyageurs and other folks used to use to navigate as they were moving around um, this part of the country, you know, doing fur trading and different things like that, or just exploring. So a lob pine is like a marker tree um, as people were traveling. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of the award is that the recipients have in some way acted as a, a navigation yeah. <laughs> um, help to others in the field. And um, I, I think there's probably a number of reasons that I received the award, but one of the big reasons that I received the award, honestly, is because I lead a team of landscape architects that is um, mostly been entirely female over the years. Mm -hmm. And that's a very unusual thing in our industry. And it wasn't intentional. <laughs> I'm not, obviously not hiring based on gender. Um, however, over time, the folks who have come to me um, when I've posted positions have often um, been women. And I think part of that is just communication skills and things that I was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. um, part of it is just the approach to how we work and what we want to achieve um, as we work. And I think a lot of that really shows through. And so I have had incredibly strong um, candidates over the years, and many of those have happened to be women. And once they are at LHB, I think they stick around um, at far greater numbers than maybe some other firms are finding, because we don't operate as if coming to work means that you have to leave your life outside of work, entirely outside of work. So sometimes you hear like, you have to work like you don't have kids, and you have to have kids like you don't work. And honestly, that doesn't actually work for anybody. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um, and so I have really um, worked hard to bring my, you know, my whole personality to the job and to encourage others to do the same and to have interests outside of work because I really believe and have found to be absolutely true that um, those other interests and other aspects of your life really inform you as a designer and can um, make for even better project opportunities over time. Can, can you give me an example of that? I'm, I'm so curious about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so recently, uh, 
we began work at, um, on, well, we've been working for the uh, local YMCA for many years, okay. um, but I became involved recently in order to do um, some master planning for a new family camp for the YMCA of the North and a number of other master plans for local um, YMCA camps, day camps and other things like that. And one of the reasons that I have been successful and I think um, really connected with that client and with those sites is because um, I am a camper. <laughs> so um, I was actually married at a YMCA camp uh, in Wisconsin. Wow. My husband was a camp counselor for many years. Um, my daughter this week is at a uh, YMCA of the North overnight camp for the first time. She's eight years old and she's oh, wow. doing that. That's exciting. Um, yeah. And so when I go and look at those sites and those camps and, and talk to those clients about how those places can be improved over time, it's, it's with that kind of, frankly, very personal investment coupled with my, my professional expertise. And I think that really does make a difference in how we address, you know, and come up with solutions for what those places need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. So I wanted to go back to, you know, your passion about mentoring and leading women in the industry. And I'm, I wanted to ask, you know, why that passion started was, was, did you have, you know, uh, a female role model early in your career? Or is this a, a need in the industry? I see it as a need in the industry. Um, there were certainly women um, who were strong uh, forces in my life, but there have not been so many women in leadership positions in local firms until recently. Now there are more and it's certainly improving, Um, but it's really hard to see what it looks like to be a successful woman in this career when you don't have those folks out in front doing it and doing it really well. Um, And, or in some cases when those um, roles maybe look like they're being modeled after how it's been done by others in the past. And what I mean by that is sometimes I think that women are asked um, to act more like maybe men have acted as leaders in the past rather than coming to it as what we really maybe bring to it personally. Um, And so when we model it on a history in our industry where frankly, a lot of men had stay-at-home wives. And I know that's a gross generalization, but in many cases, that was true. Um, And there was opportunities for them to, you know, stay late many nights of the week and not answer the phone (laughs) when the school called and your kid is sick. And all those kinds of things are happening. Um, So to to see models who are really living as parents and or have other interests outside of work and are doing that successfully alongside being a leader that i think is something that we really still need to to show as an industry um if the model is always going to be 60 hour plus weeks and that's the expectation (laughs) and you can't be interrupted i don't know how we get women because we have plenty of designers coming out of school. I don't know how we get women past the point of those child rearing years. And we know very clearly that if women leave the industry in those years, they don't come back or they don't come back in the same way that they might have if they've been able to work through them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. 
this is such an interesting conversation to have as, you know, the pandemic is still ongoing and that's been such a focus of conversation is that work-life balance. So, um, yeah, I'm glad to be talking with you about this. And I, and of course the pandemic hit women very inequitably in terms of how many of us had to step up and become (laughs) teachers, not, um, not quite the same way our public school teachers are teachers, but certainly taking on a much bigger role in that. And a lot of tough decisions had to be made. And unfortunately, it set us back a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were silver linings too. Learning that we could work successfully remotely. And I, LHB really found this was a very workable model for us. And we don't plan to go back to a five days a week in the office um, scenario going forward because we can work successfully remotely. And you don't have to have somebody looking over your shoulder every minute to be a productive um, member of the team. And so... I think there are silver linings in the pandemic, but it also has really put a lot of stress on um, a lot of people. Exactly, exactly. Well, I wanted to pivot here and talk about the landscape architect industry as a whole and kind of get your thoughts on a few different topics here. So first, I know you work on public, residential and commercial spaces. So this is a pretty broad question, so feel free to take this in any direction. I'm curious how clients' expectations for these places have changed, if at all, in recent years. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly another area where the pandemic has made a big um, shift because I think that even though folks have for a long time understood how important our public spaces are in terms of, you know, the value that they create in the property around them and, you know, folks well-being and all that, the pandemic just emphasized how critical it is to have great public spaces. And those spaces need to be um, both for gathering, but also for personal reflection. They're important for mental health. They're important for economic health. Um, And so a lot of my clients have really developed even more appreciation, particularly for parks, I think, um, but also for a public um, right-of-way. So like a public sidewalk, what can that be as a cafe or um, how maybe our roads shift uh, from you being used for cars as much. And now maybe we want to be out there as pedestrians more, much more biking, things like that. And so we were seeing some of the shift towards more trail usage and things like that even before, but now you know, I have gone to some city council meetings and just heard how critical uh, our council members think these public parks and trails are to holding their community together and giving um, all of their residents equitable access to outdoor space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. I want to come back to, you know, the public perception of public spaces. Um, but I, I first here want to ask about, you know, green spaces and public trails, since they're in such high demand right now, how does that change the, de- the design process? Well, it accelerates it a bit. There's certainly more <laughs> pressure to get more of it done. <laughs> um, you know, I think a lot of communities have had uh, trail system plans for a long time that maybe had um, analysis of where there were gaps in the system or where they needed to have better intersection safety, things like that. And Sadly, there has been an uptick in safety incidences um, as the usage has increased on our trails. And so I think there is a really strong focus on making our trail systems safer. There's also 
a big focus on making them more accessible for users of all kinds. So making sure that we're really complying with all the ADA um, rules and really thinking through how folks of all abilities, including abilities like um, perception issues, not just um, you know where we think of them as being uh, somebody with a disability uh, might be a user. And so I think our trail um, systems were ready to go in a way we had already done some of that planning and now it's just like okay we got to get it done because there's so many people out there wanting to use it right (laughs) sure sure that's great well you know with with that increased interest does that come with increased investment or are you having to do more with less in terms of the dollar um in some it's, it's very much community by community i think some folks are really stepping up and um really investing in these things right now. And some um, communities have really been concerned about how the the pandemic was going to hit their um, tax base and things like that and dialed back their investments a little bit. And so, you know, we are always conscious of the fact that we're frequently spending taxpayer money when we're building and designing these these facilities. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, trying to be really smart about how different decisions as designers and planners can can really make a difference in the costs. But, um, you know, I I think a lot of communities are seeing now that the pandemic maybe is not hurting the tax base quite as much as was feared and and really moving forward with their plans in their parks and trails. Okay, that's great. Well, you also mentioned that the perception of street uses, public street uses is changing with, you know, new um, sidewalk spaces and restaurant spaces. And so I'm assuming that this is something that the pandemic has caused, but it sounds like this is maybe something that, you know, recent social changes have also caused. So can you tell me more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think what's happening in our, in our public right of ways is really fascinating right now. Um, Because there's just way more people out there too. Folks are wanting to um, use their sidewalks more and they want to be eating on the, uh, those sidewalks. They want to be walking and biking on those um, sidewalks. And I think in a lot of cases, they're standing on a narrow sidewalk and looking out at a big street mm-hmm. and not seeing as many cars as there used to be. Um, I think a lot of commuting use has reduced. And so our streets are um, a little bit more available than they were before. And in addition to that, there has been a real big um, push to think of our streets as public property in a way that maybe um, they were thought of as car property before. And this, I think, has really shown up in some of the demonstration activities we've seen, and especially in some of the memorials that um, have been up going up in Minneapolis and other communities. Mm-hmm. And folks are really taking ownership of those spaces. And I, it can be a, a real struggle with local residences or businesses and the folks who want to have those memorials. But in some cases, it's also been a great place for the community to come together and have important conversations. And so one of the things that I think we need to look at carefully is how can we build streets that can function in many different ways, including as spaces for First Amendment um, participation. And we, you know, we've designed some newer streets that don't have curbs or are easily blocked off with bollards. And then 
also thinking how they would fit in the overall infrastructure so that cars can make it around and still patronize businesses or get to homes um, so that we can really use the streets in a variety of ways without disrupting, um, you know, crucial things. We, we have to acknowledge that we need to be able to get safety vehicles, of course, to um, all of these places. And we need life to go on for those who need to live or work in those areas as well. Mm-hmm. And, and yet protecting the, the necessary healing that I think can happen in our public, um, in our public spaces, including our streets. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Oh, that's great insight. Um, well, one of the last things I wanted to ask about here was um, your work on the Hillcrest site in St. Paul with the St. Paul Port Authorities. So um, I guess I guess my question for you is, you know, again, can you give me an overview of that and, um, you know, the, the purpose of that project? Yeah, that is such a fascinating project. Um, it is, of course, the the planning is going on right now with the city um, in order to do a um, redevelopment of what used to be the Hillcrest Golf Course. And the St. Paul Port Authority is, um, is planning to be the developer for that property. And the um, St. Paul Port Authority is, of course, a very interesting organization in that they are driven by the desire to to build places for jobs. And so they develop um, some very interesting sites all across um, St. Paul and they um, use those sites to develop uh, jobs that have low barriers to entry. So, you know, you you don't have to have uh, a very large um, uh, amount of education or other um, training in order to take on those those jobs. And um, the, the plan then for Hillcrest is that that site will become a mix of light industrial use and housing. Because of course, another thing that we're all dealing with right now quite a bit is the need for more affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, overall master plan mixes those things along with a lot of open space, all these things we've been talking about, trails and parks and and public open spaces. And um, it's a really exciting site. And it also has to have a bunch of uh, environmental remediation uh, due to chemicals that were used at the golf course, things like that. So there's a lot of positive um, stuff going on in that realm as well. And because the Port Authority has this um, mission-driven approach to redevelopment, they have also decided to attempt to make this one of the greenest redevelopments that uh, we've really ever seen. And we just learned, and this is really timely, that um, it is the first pre-certified platinum lead, um, lead for new communities project. So first in the nation, not just in our state or something, and really a commitment to those um, sustainability goals that we think will be key. Yeah. Can you tell me what that characteristic means about certification, I should say? The certification is a multifaceted approach to sustainability. So just like lead for buildings has people look at how energy is used and how stormwater is treated and how in indoor environmental quality, um, like air quality and, and access to natural light, all that works in a building. Mm-hmm. Similarly, Lead for New Communities, it looks at how um, an, a group of buildings make, might function in all of those areas. So we're looking at 
carbon usage and transportation issues and um, again, stormwater, which yeah. pops up a lot around here. Yeah. So all of those things are covered by the lead process. Okay, okay, great. Well, that was the last topic that I wanted to ask about. So um, in our final moment here, is there anything else you wanted to add in or mention? Well, we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> I know, I know, a lot, a lot of great topics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I think I, I would just like to offer that I think that the design profession um, has a real opportunity as we see a, a lot of cultural shifts happening right now and a lot of pressure to address environmental issues, especially climate change. And I'm really hopeful that landscape architects, architects, engineers, others, um, can really work together in order to positively impact our community. And I think it has huge social benefits. I think it has economic benefits and opportunities. And I am really excited to, to, to not be retiring just because I got the love by door and instead be, be looking forward to so many um, exciting opportunities in the coming years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thanks again for your time and for joining me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce, or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.